Um, so I'm really delighted to be here and to talk about um, this project. Um, and I'm particularly interested in your thoughts about its um, trajectory and where I might go. It's very much a work in progress. And it's come out of, uh, Alex has reminded me that, um, and I think Gordon did as well, about the decades that I've been teaching. So thank you all for that reminder. <laughs> Uh, but during um, the time that I have been teaching, I've been teaching, I started out teaching a course called Race Conscious Remedies, which one might think of as sort of an advanced equal protection course. And I've noticed um, that over the time of teaching that course, there's been an interesting kind of shift um, from the way of thinking about inequality and its remediation. So um, the idea that racial inequality and inequality in general might be best addressed by remedies that focus on class rather than race, or class and race, which was the earlier sort of conception, has given way to the idea that the focus should be on class, not race. So um, over time, what I've sort of seen is a shift from thinking about class and race interventions combined to class, not race. Uh, and this has been particularly in evidence in terms of debates over race-conscious affirmative action. So given that some of the early demands for race-conscious affirmative action were structured around race and class, my, I just basically wanted to try to figure out how did this consensus move to class, not race. Um, even if we assume that prior campaigns have failed to implement a true class and race-focused agenda, why is the cure for that failure to jettison race? Um, so rather than mobilizing a sense of sort of linked faith, uh, that is the conjunction of race and class, um, we find that dismantling racial hierarchy um, and dismantling class inequality are projects that are placed in opposition. Um, and in fact, the challenge to um, uh, racial inequality that is framed around race is often itself cast as an elitist anti-populist project. So I was trying to figure out how that happened. So I want to give you a couple examples. So this is Walter Ben Michaels, um, who wrote a book called The Trouble with Diversity, How We Learn to Love Identity and Avoid Inequality. He makes the claim that the quest for diversity has supplanted and occluded the struggle to address inequality. And he says, giving priority to issues like affirmative action and committing itself to the celebration of difference, the intellectual left has responded to the increase in economic inequality by insisting on the importance of cultural identity. So for 30 years, while the gap between the rich and poor has grown larger, we've been urged to respect people's identities as if the problem of poverty would be solved if we just appreciated the poor. Specifically, he says, when students and faculty activists struggle for racial cultural diversity, they are in fact, they are in large part struggling over what skin color the rich kids should have. Um, What's interesting is that Walter Penn Michaels identifies himself as a progressive. That's the one on the left. Uh, this is a book by Richard Sander on the law faculty at UCLA. He has centered his career on an attack on race-conscious affirmative action. His argument is that affirmative action places black students in academic environments where they cannot succeed, and that because of the differences in their entering credentials, on average, they are doomed to underperform in law school and as a consequence fail the bar. Um, so his point is, is that affirmative action, race conscious affirmative action causes more harm than good for black law students. This is the cover of his book. Um, you'll note here the depiction. Which of the pencils is different? Which one is broken? Okay. Um, so uh, Sander uh, claims that his research is empirically based. Uh, that's obviously been controversial and contested, but his uh, research has been uh, contested by um, a number of scholars, including in the context of the litigation over Fisher. There were various amici brief files. This is from one of the amici briefs uh, from social science researchers who basically said this work is not uh, empirically sound. However, he has continued, Sander has continued to urge uh, his position and to say that it is uh, substantiated. And in addition to making the claim that it harms black students and that there's empirical evidence to that effect, he's also made the claim that um, 
the problem with race-conscious remediation is that it ignores class hierarchy in higher education. So again, this idea of sort of placing race-conscious remedies and class inequality in opposition. So here uh, is from his a more recent article. Actually, I guess the book is a more recent, but the book is based on an earlier article. But this article followed the first, and it says basically, in rhetorical terms, the diversity of which the, the legal academy speaks is about both class and race, yet as a practical matter, whenever discussions of law school diversity become concrete, the discussion almost invariably focuses on race. Although racial diversity has increased sharply during the intervening decades, the great majority of non-white law students are like whites from relatively elite backgrounds. So again, here you see this sort of claim uh, of opposing sort of race-conscious remediation and class uh, remediation. Um, he too uh, self-identifies as a liberal and progressive. And, um, the other example comes from a perhaps unusual uh, source in some ways. Uh, Michelle Alexander's blockbuster book, The New Jim Crow, uh, powerfully indicts the system of mass incarceration which has reproduced the racial caste that was presumably overturned when Brown overturned Plessy. Um, by racial caste, she means a group that is defined wholly or largely by race, that is permanently locked out of mainstream white society by law, custom, and practice. So she points to legalized discrimination against those with criminal records and their political disenfranchisement, as well as the symbolic representation of blacks and its equation or conflation with criminality uh, as a byproduct of mass incarceration. It's a very trenchant critique, um, but um, it does, in fact, um, not necessarily attend to the other ways in which gender figures into this question. But she also makes an argument in the final chapter, uh, the subheading of which is the racial bribe, let's give it back, in which she contends that affirmative action has a number of problems and that in order to um, achieve some kind of um, intervention around the mass incarceration problem, that we should essentially um, give up on affirmative action because it constitutes a racial bribe. Uh, we should return it in exchange for a full-out commitment to end the system of mass incarceration. Uh, not to belabor the point too much further, uh, Cheryl Cashin has a book called Place Not Race, uh, in which uh, she makes a case to address the problem of racial inequality in access to higher education by privileging those who live in severely disadvantaged neighborhoods. Now, while she explicitly claims that her arguments against race-conscious affirmative action and for place-based affirmative action ought not to be confused with class-based alternatives, in other words, she's saying when she says place, she doesn't mean class. Uh, but nevertheless, in many respects, her argument is expressed in a similar against race register. And this is from her book. Okay. The civil rights community expends energy on a policy that primarily benefits the most advantaged children of color while contributing to a divisive politics that makes it difficult to create quality K-12 education, and so on. So to be clear, um, I want to say that the idea of a social inclusion policy, admissions policy, that privileges those coming from areas of concentrated poverty is one that I wholeheartedly support. Uh, the question that I have is why the pursuit of such a policy would require abandoning race. Um, and so even assuming, as I said, that uh, past versions of affirmative action have failed to attend adequately to class inequality, either as a matter of intra-racial difference or uh, as a matter of attending to the poor across racially, why is the answer to jettison race? Why the move from race and class to class, not race? So I want to challenge this framing and this move. Uh, and I want to argue that part of the problem here is that instead of a race and class intervention, class, not race, has historically been tethered to a conservative racial project or framework that is part of the mobilization against forms of affirmative action have, or race-conscious race remediation more broadly have often been framed as a kind of class-not-race intervention. But now what I'm arguing is that class-not-race has become an important repository for something I'm calling post-racial whiteness, meaning in the post-racialism period, it has become a part of 
legitimate liberal and progressive agendas and constitutive of what I'm calling a kind of centrist consensus, or maybe more accurately, a kind of convergence of the left and right. And so I uh, want to actually challenge that consensus. Part of the way that this works is that, um, and I should say a little bit more about what I mean by colorblindness. Let me go back here. So I use these terms. I should probably tell you what I'm thinking about. So by colorblindness, I mean the constellation of ideas that are sort of central to both contemporary cons constitutional jurisprudence and to political discourse, the idea that it's an account of racism that is focused on individual harm, it's focused on intent, and the idea is that what the objective is is to obtain formal equality, which is defined as the absence of attending to race. That's what I mean by colorblindness. Um, drawing on the work of Sumi Cho, what do I mean by post-racialism? Post-racialism is its sort of first cousin of colorblindness. But um, as she suggests, the signal, I guess I would say important shift, is the shift from ought to is. That is, we ought to be colorblind to we have become colorblind. And the principal evidence of this shift is the election of Barack Obama, right? So the trading on that election as sort of evidence of the achievement of the goal of, of colorblindness is really what is meant by sort of post-racialism, at least as I'm using it here. So what are the underlying assumptions? Um, so partly, I guess I should back up and say that um, the reason that I'm interested in this is not just because I'm interested in defending race-conscious affirmative action, of which I, I, I am, but I also want to suggest that this declassification of race that I'm seeing in the context of this argument has consequences not only for affirmative action, but for how we think about a whole range of issues that we might consider important. And in certain respects, what I guess I'm saying to be metaphorical about it is that it's a form of putting racism and specifically anti-black racism into the closet. All right. Um, so here are the underlying assumptions of the argument of class, not race. One is, um, is the idea that remedying class inequality can eradicate racial inequality. So the idea here is that a universalistic focus on class inequality will capture racial inequality. And so therefore, you don't really need to pursue racial, uh, remedies for racial inequality if you pursue class-based inequality. So I'm arguing that it really depends upon a kind of notion of race and class is pretty much overlapping, right? You can get at one by getting at the other, uh, or at least the primacy of class as a category over race. Uh, interestingly, uh-oh, little, little blip there. Um, the remediation, uh, the uh, second assumption sort of operating under this is actually an interesting sort of converse, which is that the remediation of racial inequality does nothing to eliminate class inequality, which is sort of what we saw in the Walter Ben Michaels and some of these other arguments. So you have a kind of notion of race and class as almost being disaggregated, right? They, they don't overlap sufficiently such that you can intervene on the grounds of race and achieve anything like either intra- racial class equality or across race uh, class equality. All right. So you might say, well, obviously, you know, we've been around the block here. We know that you don't want to think in terms of extremes. Maybe the answer is this, right? The answer is, is that they overlap, right? What we know is that disproportionate numbers of poor people are people of color and that disproportionately blacks are more poor than other groups. Um, and so maybe uh, what we want to say is that they correlate, right? Um, and so that a more moderate position, that less, sort of less extreme than the first two, would be to say that race and class inequality sufficiently overlap that interventions along one dimension will tend to affect the other. Thus, an anti-racist intervention will tend to mitigate class inequality. So again, sort of a, a more moderate position. And an intervention against class inequality will tend to mitigate racial subordination. So I'm not so sure. Okay. So 
If pictures one and two are wrong, is the correct picture picture three, where the circles intersect? Is it, does it capture, does that Venn diagram capture the actual relationship? Is it possible that correlational understandings are also incomplete if we're thinking about the relationship between race and class? And perhaps more provocatively, since I'm being provocative anyway, I may as well go there. Why might anti-racist interventions mitigate class inequality, but race-neutral class-based inter interventions not significantly mitigate racial inequality? In other words, why might it be the case that interventions along one dimension actually do have cross-category effects, but not the converse? Okay. So part of uh, what's going on here is that we have a lot of confusion both in, I would argue, in both political and sort of organizational po political discourse and organizational politics about what we're saying and what we mean by race and class. And it's also contrast with the conceptions of race and class that emerge from sort of constitutional jurisprudence. Okay. So what do we see when we think about discursive and organizational politics? And what I mean by discursive politics is the way we talk about these ideas. So on the one hand, we have a kind of way of discussing race and class, uh, thinking about it both in terms of the way we organize ourselves, the way we mobilize ourselves, the language that is used to do so, in which we characterize race as being subjective, as distinct from class, which is objective, we characterize race as sort of an individual characteristic that people have. We all have race here, and it's individual in a certain, to a certain extent. Individual identity, I guess I should say. As distinct from class, which is a more collective notion. Um, we think of race as being fluid, um, sort of ambiguous, difficult to ascertain, uh, as against class, which is fixed. Uh, an indeterminacy attends to race in a way that we think of class as being more grounded, and finally, a sort of notion of race as being an ideological category, hence, you know, the sort of, I guess I would say, heir to the idea of race as a social construct, as distinct from a biological category, is the notion that it's ideological, um, as distinct from class, which is material. So you have a notion of class being real, and race is not, right? Uh, and to some extent, this is, um, this is sort of a very familiar, I guess I would say, debate within historical, the historical left around the realness of class as distinct from the made-up nature of race. Um, so in this view, uh, race is, uh, if anything, epiphenomenal, epiphenomenal, meaning a conception that racism is a function of or symptomatic of some bigger or other or more real social problem. Now, a contrasting view emerges when we think about race and class in legal doctrine. And here, um, this is, I guess I would call it, the more uncertain characterization under equal protection, uh, the way in which class or a poverty, if you will, is conceptualized. It. And the way I've tried to sort of uh, divided is to think about cases before Rodriguez, which is a key case, San Antonio uh, versus Rodriguez. And um, before Rodriguez, you have what I call a sort of now you see it, now you don't character to the equal protection jurisprudence around class. So you have a set of cases under the now you see it, where the court um, allows the plaintiffs to recover or, or allows the plaintiffs claim under equal protection because there has been some denial of access to some particular um, resource, governmental resource, or access to the courts. Uh, you have Harper, which is a case involving a poll tax. The court strikes that down. Um, you have rights of access to the courts, both in terms of criminal procedure and civil justice, where, uh, again, this whole notion of access to the courts, the court says, well, you can't condition uh, participation or access to representation based on whether or not you can pay, right? That's an equal protection violation. I've stuck Goldberg versus Kelly here not because I think it's an equal protection case, but because I think it's an important case in terms of thinking about this question of uh, sort of procedural justice as well as a moment where the court clearly says, we understand who 
is seeking the administrative benefits at issue here, uh, and we agree that it is in fact uh, seeking access to something that should not be conditioned upon, um, uh, ra rather that the procedure should in fact not should in fact recognize the fact that the person has uh, some rights. The now you don't characteristic are the subsequent cases where you start to see the court characterize the plaintiff's claims as seeking an affirmative right. So you have a case called Dandridge uh, where the court upholds um, a cap, uh, a so-called family cap. Uh, this is where um, families who were on government assistance um, were, um, were unable to get any additional benefits with the birth of additional children. Um, this was challenged as a wealth discrimination under equal protection, and the court said no, you know, we, there is no sort of affirmative right that you have to government assistance in the first place, so conditioning this right is not in any, in any event uh, um, violating your equal protection rights. Um, similarly, in the government-funded abortion cases, Maher and Harris, you have the court saying, um, no, we are not going to um, recognize any equal protection right to uh, government-funded or government-paid-for abortion because the government did not cause the woman's poverty. The poverty was caused by some other factors, but not something that the government did, so therefore there is no right. So my point here is that you have this sort of way in which um, now you see it, you see sort of class inequality as being recognized, now you don't. Uh, and then we come to Rodriguez, which is the key case. Um, so in Rodriguez, you have the court upholding uh, a Texas school district's funding disparity against an equal protection challenge. Um, and uh, on the equal protection analysis side, the court says the poor cannot be defined in equal protection terms. Um, the poor could mean people whose income falls below a specific level, or it could mean people who are disadvantaged because of a correlation between lower family income and educational expenditures, or it could mean people who live in poor, as in lower property value districts. But in any event, um, there's no evidence um, that uh, either one or three is the case, and we don't have any sufficient evidence with respect to two either, so the poor are really not a category that's cognizable in terms of equal protection terms. So in the absence of a suspect class or a fundamental right, the court applies rational basis review and upholds this disparity. Okay? There was some reasonable basis for the distinction, therefore, and there was no absolute deprivation, which the court relied upon heavily. That is, all children were getting some education. Therefore, there's no violation. So after Rodriguez, you get basically the important thing here is federal constitutional challenges to inequality based on poverty as an equal protection class kind of go away. There, there isn't much anymore after that. Now, um, there's a problem here. Um, but um, before we get to the problem, sort of conceptually, the reason why I say this contrasts with the discursive politics is what we have here in, as a jurisprudential matter is the treatment of class as indeterminate, class as fluid, class as imposing affirmative duties, as distinct from race, which is conceptually determinate, uh, immutable, and imposing only a negative duty of non-discrimination. So in the jurisprudential domain, we have race being cognizable, but class is not. Right? So this is sort of an interesting way in which this is framed. I should point out, however, this is not the end of the story, right? This is maybe only the story up until about, I don't know, mid-80s, early 90s, because there's now a sort of interesting question as to whether or not we're seeing the same characteristics ascribed to class being now ascribed to race. That is, its indeterminacy, its fluidity, and its imposition of affirmative duties, but I'll come back to that. Um, several critiques arise uh, regarding Rodriguez. Um, first, uh, the children and their parents who were struggling to attain a, a decent education were not just children who happened to be poor. They were poor Latino children, and part of the reason that they were trapped into the wrong end of the distribution of educational resources had to do with the fact that they were Latino. Right. It, it was no accident that this district was 90% Latino. 
uh, and happened to be poor. They, they didn't happen to be poor. Uh, there, there was a, a, a deeper relationship than just sort of happenstance in, in that convergence. Um, the uh, funding scheme, which allocated funds according to districts, uh, was pre presented as a valued attribute of local control. That is, we value the ways in which school districts can exercise autonomy over their expenditures. But the funding scheme was built atop long-standing patterns of residential segregation, a very deeply racialized geography that had located and concentrated poor Latino children in a poor district where the schools were subpar. Okay, so that's first. But um, as Camille Walsh argues in uh, this very nice piece, the problem that the court uh, failed to recognize is that Rodriguez is a classic intersectional analysis. And my colleague Kimberly Crenshaw, who is the architect of thinking about intersectionality, critiques the ways in which legal doctrine often uh, silos off uh, identities and treats them as though we are not always and already a product of a number of identities and wants. We are not simply black or women. We are a black woman, or we are a white man, or we are an Asian woman. We are not any one of these things. And then we can also think about class and sexuality and disability and the rest. Um, what Camille points out is that the plaintiffs um, and their families were asserting a claim that was based on both race and class that the court was failing to recognize. So in, in many respects, what the court did was subsuming race under class. Uh, at the same time, they artificially separated it. Um, and so they were both advanced as claims in the lawsuit. Parties, she said, on both sides rarely discussed race if at all. And when race did enter the discussion, it was often used to analogize the experience of race and class. So race was also deployed um, by the state, actually, in its arguments to argue that protecting the poor would hurt racial minorities, which is a sort of interesting twist. Um, in this regard, um, the court's decision, she says, ultimately protected racial inequalities in education by erasing race from the conversation and dismissing class as a constitutionally protected category. So. Um, the failure to, in addition to the failure to incorporate an intersectional analysis in Rodriguez, the underlying, and, and, and I would argue an equally as deep problem, is the failure to address the racialized nature of class identity. Okay. And uh, there's lots of history that's been done on this. Um, the fact is, is that working class as a category is a category that is coded as racially white. Underclass is a category that is coded as racially black. So if I say, you know, when we leave here, I want to go to a working class bar, you all might wonder what I'm doing, but <laughs> you might also have in mind a picture as to what that bar might be, right? Um, and we can think about it in terms of contemporary political discourse, um, how working class functions as a white identity. So this is Hillary Clinton way back 2008 uh, after she's won the West Virginia primary and this is what she said. She says, I'm staying in the race for the nurse on her second shift, for the worker on the line, for the waitress on her feet, for the small business owner, the farmer, the teacher, the coal miner, the trucker, the soldier, the veteran. Right? Um, and as a recent article in the National Journal said entitled, Can Hillary Clinton Bring White Men Back? Um, she said, Clinton didn't say white people, but she didn't need to. The message was clear. And she was even more explicit in an interview with U.S. Today that month saying, quote, Obama's support among working, hardworking Americans, white Americans, is weakening. Right? She took a lot of heat for that. People said she was sort of interjecting race into the discussion. But the point that I'm trying to get is how our discursive politics understand and code working, um, working class identity as white. And you know, just to be equal opportunity about it, um, I, I wasn't able to embed the clip, but Obama, um, Obama's uh, acceptance speech of the Democratic Convention in Denver included a shout out to working people. And the depictions that he used was everyone except a black person. So it's just sort of another interesting moment. Of, uh, of the way in which this identity gets coded as white. 
I couldn't embed it and make it play, so I'll have to just act it out for you. Um, so as I said before, this has, um, and this is an old story, right? This occlusion of race or the class supplanting race is an old story. Um, I call it as being a troubled relationship from the get-go. Uh, and we see this, Eric Schnapper's really wonderful uh, old article on the legislative history of the 14th Amendment uh, goes into the debates over the Freedmen's Bureau, which was a race-targeted intervention post-Reconstruction designed to address the problems of formerly enslaved Africans and the, the, the fact that they had nothing. Right? Um, the Freedmen's Bureau was very controversial and it was uh, objected to on the grounds that it was a racial preference that ignored and disfavored poor white people. So there's, the legislative history is full of lots of comments like this. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? A little bit. Um, so to say that race is ideological, uh, unlike class, which is material, I would argue ignores the ideological dimensions of class and the materiality of race. Uh, and by materiality, I don't just mean just race writ large, but I mean specifically white supremacy and something called the wages of whiteness. Right? This is W.B. Du Bois from Black Reconstruction. And what he's arguing here is why it is, or sort of interrogating why is it the case that people who are at the bottom of the economic distribution, whites, who are not benefiting from an economic system that is set up to disfavor them, do not align with blacks who are at the bottom of a system that has been designed to exploit them as well. Uh, in part, what uh, Du Bois says here is um, that there is a psychological and public wage of whiteness that is paid even to those at the bottom of the income distribution or economic distribution. This wage does not completely offset the cost of class oppression, nor does it insulate the white working class from attack or destabilization. Indeed, the benefits of white privilege compared to the fragile position of workers of all races under neoliberalism can be a very difficult calculus to make. That is, what are those wages and are they really worth it? That's a very difficult calculus to make, particularly in times of economic retrenchment. However, um, it's the relative advantage vis-a-vis -vis the black poor and the both um, public and psychological wages that whiteness pays that Du Bois um, says ultimately becomes important to the white worker. White labor then saw, he says, in every advance of Negroes a threat to their own racial prerogatives. Moreover, uh, as, as I said, there's a lot of history on this. I don't want to belabor it too much. Race is a line through which class consciousness has been formed in the United States. And this is the work of David Rodiger, among others, who basically talks about the ways in which the evolution of the working, white working class is both a top-down and a bottom-up formation, meaning um, it was critical for the white working class to distinguish themselves from blacks. Uh, to distinguish themselves from slaves. Um, and indeed, the free labor movement itself has a lot of history in this. Um, so my point is here that there's a troubled relationship, a problematic sort of discourse and politics around this from the get-go. And I don't want to overrepresent this, which is to say it's not to say there haven't been moments where there's been interventions or disruptions or coalitions even. Um, but rather to say that there's, there's been a problem here for quite a while. Um, so we could think about the ways in which this travels through time, right? Late 19th, 20th century, the consolidation of the working class as a white identity. Again, there's disruptions, episodes of cross-racial coalition, of trade movement, trade union movement, black communist, and then these sort of very complex politics around the New Deal, right? 
which was both delivered uh, major interventions into economic inequality at the same time it enacted a whole host of racial exclusions. Uh, the categories of workers that were not covered by the New Deal were specifically categories that were racialized, uh, domestic workers uh, and agricultural workers. So now here we are, late, uh, you know, say about 10, 15 years ago, late 20th century, we have, uh, as part of a sort of conservative politics, class being evoked against anti-racism in order to court white working class voters, in order to offset the influence of voters of color into resisting the expansion of the social welfare. We also have a period of rising inequality and what I'm calling racial exhaustion. That is the notion of sort of just being tired of this kind of contestation and not being able to sort of get out of the, get out of the uh, knotted nature of it, Gordian knot of it. Um, so the expression of this comes in the form of class not race as a form of public policy. Proposition 209 from California, the state from which I hail, is sort of the uh, exemplar number one of this. And that is to say that the politics around this were very clearly directed towards a class not race agenda. We no longer need racial preferences, said Warren Connolly, because it does all of those bad things um, in terms of balkanizing us by race at the same time that it fails to attend to the real inequality, which is socioeconomic. Uh, another sort of iteration of this, which did not pass, is Proposition 54, the so-called Racial Privacy Initiative. Uh, this was one where the state would have been barred from taking account of race or keeping racial data. Um, in point of fact, the similar arguments uh, were made in behalf of both. It was unsuccessful in Prop 54 for reasons that we can talk about afterwards, which are kind of interesting. But the point is, is that race-conscious remedies like affirmative action benefited only well-to-do blacks and unjustly favor them over the poor of all races. Again, this sort of notion of colorblindness to post-racialism, now I'm trying to sort of track how does this shift and why does it shift. And uh, I guess there's a sort of set of arguments that get mobilized now um, which I describe as sort of a more liberal progressive consensus, which says, one, um, we got to shift to class because it's politically necessary. Race is just so fraught. It's so difficult. We can't get sort of any coalitional politics going under the banner of race. So it's politically necessary to just set it aside. So it's sort of an instrumentalist argument. Um, there's also a normative argument, though, that basically says it's, it's more sound because considerations of race, I guess this is both normative and instrumentalist in some ways, considerations of race reinforce elitism and protect class privilege. So we actually need to get, it's not just a political um, sort of uh, uh, con uh, concession that we're making, it's important to do so because we've got to get away from this problem of the way in which race conscious remediation reinforces class privilege. And of course, legally, it's just jurisprudentially easier to make um, policies that are class-based because they're not going to be subject to strict scrutiny. Um, partly what I want to say is that there's, I'm calling it a sort of post-racial diversion. Maybe I should call it a revision. Because it depends upon a revisionist account of affirmative action. Uh, and I haven't had a chance to sort of work all this through, but this is the part where I went back and looked at my notes when I first started teaching this course, and I noticed something interesting, which is that many of the earlier cases that involved affirmative action were about black workers. They weren't about access to elite institutions. They were about black workers who were fighting either employers or the racial cartel of unions. And they were seeking to get in the door um, fighting for access to employment. The history of affirmative action actually comes out of, in part, the black trade union movement, uh, which was knocking on the door and demanding access, not to Harvard or Yale, but to a job. Okay. Um, the other point is that um, there's been a kind of revisionist account of earlier forms of affirmative action that have cast affirmative action as race-only programs, when in fact a good number of them were programs that were described as being for socioeconomically disadvantaged persons, 
and racial identity was seen as being a sufficient proxy for SES. So in other words, the program would say we're, tar you know, we're, we're making an intervention for socioeconomic disadvantage, but the presumption is if you are black, you fit the category. Now maybe that's wrong. I'm not arguing it's right. I'm not arguing as an empirical matter it's right. I'm not arguing as a normative matter it's right. I'm just trying to say that what we had is a sort of way in which affirmative action was being implemented in which socioeconomic disadvantage was actually part of the story, right? And racial identity functioned as a proxy for socioeconomic status. Um, and then we come to Sasha and Malia. <laughs> Um, so it's the mobilization of blackness as a mark of privilege, uh, which is actually occurring under post-racialism. This obviously wouldn't have been available 40 years ago, right? It's available now primarily not just because we have Michael Jordan and Oprah, which used to be the old examples, right? And people would say, well, wait a minute, those are entertainers or sports figures. Now we have a president, right? That counts in a very, very different way. Uh, and it certainly has been traded upon uh, with great, to great effect uh, by conservatives in making arguments about why we no longer need certain remedies for the Voting Rights Act, right. uh, why we no longer need certain kinds of race-conscious remediation. And so Sasha and Malia become the figures, well, do you think they should have affirmative action? Uh, being considered for admission into some elite institution, well, of course the answer is no. At least that's what their dad said, right? Um, but we, we, we might stop and think about, you know, what is the sample size on that? Like the children of the president? Okay. But um, the, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a way in which this argument of class over race is depending upon some certain distortions distortions of the history as well as sort of distortions of the meaning of things like the election of a black president. So the other thing that's going on here is some fuzziness, some distortions around what do we mean by class in the class not race argument. Does class mean access to an equal starting point or a particular resource? Does class mean status? Or is class simply not race? It's that other stuff other than race. Um, what's absent from any of these accounts is any kind of notion of class struggle or class warfare. There's, there's no account of the systemic processes that produce inequality. It's just kind of there, right? And so there's, you know, without sort of you know, having to whip out Marx, one could still come up with an account of class that's more robust than this, right? But the account of class that is primarily relied upon here is one in which um, socioeconomic or income stands in for class, uh, other things stand in for class, but there's no sort of account of class in which we think about the systemic production of inequality as being the problem that we're trying to address. Similarly, so I, I want to argue there's a kind of hollowing out of class in the class not race argument. Not surprisingly, there's also a hollowing out of race in a similar way. Uh, race is identity, race is epiphenomenal to class, and race is a category that either doesn't connect with or is al alternatively insufficiently correlates with class to be useful in crafting remedial interventions. And here we have a sort of um, conception of race as being something that is, cannot be sort of understood in productive ways. So um, here's where I'm sort of saying maybe the contemporary constitutional jurisprudential version is one in which class and race look the same, right? They're indeterminate, they're fluid, they impose affirmative duties. I'm thinking about um, parents involved in community schools, that's K-12 education and desegregation. Uh, in that case, the court says, well, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. That's Roberts, right? What conception of race underlies that statement? Right. Uh, it's a conception of race in which attending to race in the form of remediation is imposing some kind of improper affirmative duty um, and is one in which 
uh, the court or, or in which it ought not to be involved. In disparate impact, I'm thinking here of Ricci. Uh, this is the New Haven firefighter case, uh, where the court basically, even though it's not an equal protection case, sort of um, takes a kind of strict scrutiny-like analysis and applies it not just to the remedy, which we might think of as affirmative action, but to the cause of action itself. That is, to Title VII's disparate impact provisions itself are uh, in conflict with the norms of anti-discrimination. So you have a sort of head-bending moment where the provisions of anti-discrimination law are themselves deemed to be discriminatory, not the remedy, the law itself. Okay. So in that sense, we move to race is not or should not be cognizable. Um, so I said before that something more was at stake here. Um, so the move to class not race functions on multiple levels. It functions as a conservative attack, as I said, on race conscious remediation. It also func functions as this sort of contemporary consensus. Uh, and it also is functioning as litigation strategy okay. for reasons which might make total sense but are deeply problematic. So I think we might all agree, or maybe we don't, and I open it up, I, I, I don't want to presume, but that race has something to do with what happened in Ferguson. Maybe we might agree. Okay. Um, as in addition to the complaints by the residents in Ferguson of the longstanding, uh, from their perspective, day-to-day -day harassment and aggressive stop and searches, um, they've contended that this whole um, uh, way in which they've been policed has been part of a systemic pattern in which black people have been stopped, arrested, and fined, um, and uh, that the municipalities in question have been rely relying on the fines to run the city. Right. So um, I don't know if any of you saw it, but there was a clip of a man going into Mike Brown's funeral who was talking about how Every time he came into Ferguson, his car was stopped. He was given a ticket. He was unable to pay the ticket. The fines piled up on top of fines. He ended up having to go to jail. He ended up losing his job. And he said, every time I come, he said, I have to actually sneak into the city to see my children. Because sometimes my tag is sort of out of date. But I know that if I come here, right, what I'm going to be subjected to. Turns out his story is a very, very common story. There's a huge disproportional, uh, I guess I would say, um, ways in which revenues are being collected from fines and in which uh, the majority of people that are being targeted for this kind of policing are black. Of course, Ferguson is a majority black city. Um, recently, plaintiffs in two separate cases, these are two of the plaintiffs, filed uh, a federal um, civil rights uh, class action lawsuits against Ferguson and another nearby municipality, Jennings, over what they allege are essentially modern-day debtors' prisons. And what they're saying is, is that the targeting of poor African Americans for arrest and incarceration for non-payment of fines, uh, being held um, without attorneys, never given hearings to determine what their fees actually are, a sort of constant kind of doubling and tripling of the fines, um, according to the lawsuit, at least four people have, who were jailed and unable to pay to get out have committed suicide in the past uh, previous five months. There's also been um, complaints about the conditions of the jail. Um, so um, this was taken from a Democracy Now! Um, television program where they were interviewing these two plaintiffs and their lawyer. Um, and you see the heading, it says, Ferguson residents challenged modern debtors prison scheme targeting blacks with fines and arrests. The face of this lawsuit is black, meaning the, the plaintiffs clearly are articulating um, a way in which they are experiencing both race and class oppression. That is, the fact that they are poor, the fact that they are black, has placed them in a particular vulnerability to this kind of state practice. Um, yet, um, the complaint itself, and uh, again, I wasn't able to sort of pull it up, but the complaint itself says nothing about the race of the complainants. It actually is framed entirely as a case about class or poverty. Right. Um, there are obviously strategic reasons for doing so, and I'm not slamming the lawyers for doing that. 
what I'm trying to point out is that this reproduces exactly what we were just, I was just sort of trying to illustrate with Rodriguez. That is the plaintive sort of experience of race and class as both significant in their, um, in their deprivation is not the way in which the case is being litigated. It's not the way in which the case is sort of being brought to the fore. So what might be a better way um, to understand the relationship between race and class? And I'm going to leave you with this because I'm still trying to figure this out. <laughs> so rather than just thinking about the sort of intersecting little Venn diagrams, what we might think about is a system um, in which you have race and class sort of interdetermining and affecting each other and also being affected by other social dimensions and also being mediating. That is to say, so the double-edged arrows are reciprocal inf uh, relationships going back and forth. The single ones are conditioning effects, meaning moderated relationships. And it's all maybe way too complicated a diagram, but I'm trying to get at what I consider to be a complex relationship. Um, and what I'm trying to say is, is that the, the issue of race and class formation is one in which um, we might think about the problem as, or, or let me put it another way, that the class not race argument is ignoring the complexity of this relationship. Uh, it's ignoring the accumulation of advantage, advantage and disadvantage as embodied in what I call the materiality of race. So in that context, whiteness is not about an individual white person or even a racial type, right? It's a social relation that is structured on exclusion, structural privilege, and the val its valorization as property. And when critics of race-conscious remediation adopt the framework of class, not race, they're in danger of sort of losing this complex relationship. Um, and it's also the case that, um, in part, Whiteness, it, it helps to explain how whiteness comes to function, or at least I hope it explains, function as a cross-class cross coalition, right? And if we think about it in that way, then maybe it's possible to think about how to disrupt it. Now, I don't want to say when I say whiteness is a cross-class coalition that I mean that it's always a peaceful relationship between people who are white and poor and people who are rich and poor. Uh, far from the case. Uh, I think the recent financial crisis sort of tested the limits of the coalition, if you will, uh, and anxiety, uh, actually, because of the deeply destabilizing character of the 2008 financial crisis, really, in some ways, we can see as giving birth to two oppositional movements, one that's explicitly reactionary and color conscious, which is the Tea Party, and the other which is explicitly progressive and largely colorblind, which is Occupy, right? So I'm not saying that these relationships are sort of all, that this is a coalition that's all peaceful and everybody's sort of joined hands together uh, around their whiteness. That's, and singing kumbaya, that's not what's happening. <laughs> but um, the point that I'm trying to get at here is that class in this country has meaning beyond income or wealth. It's a material expression of racial hierarchy the relationship is not simply correlational or coextensive, but constitutive. And in that sense, we need to think about how that relationship is actually working in order to better address both race and class inequality.